Welcome to Words and Worlds at Adelaide Fest Writers' Festival. I'm Tully Lovey, a writer and critic from Melbourne. We acknowledge the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to their elders, past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people today. Sovereignty has never been ceded. And before we begin, now is the time for a quick COVID safe announcement to remind you to maintain social distance. This is crucial as it is a key condition of our COVID management plan approved by SA Health. Please remember too that these wonderful books we're discussing today can be purchased at the book tent and that there will be a book signing at the end of the session. And keep in mind too that we will take questions from you towards the end of the session. Please turn your phones to silent. If you are tweeting or Instagramming, the hashtag is hashtag ADLWW and that is it for the announcements, I think. <laughs> There's enough this year, I tell you what. Malcolm Knox has worked for the Sydney Morning Herald in various capacities as literary editor, investigations reporter, columnist and sports writer. He is the recipient of numerous prizes, including three Walkley Awards. And here is where we pause and wonder if Malcolm has secretly discovered the much-yearned-for elixir which has enabled him to clone himself, <laughs> for he is also the author of 15 books of non-fiction, and this Bluebird is his seventh work of fiction. His previous novels include Summerland, A Private Man, Jamaica, The Life, The Wonder Lover, and they have been critical and popular successes. Kevin Rabelais has referred to him as one of the most ambitious and exciting fiction writers at work in Australia. Malcolm's work has won and been shortlisted for numerous awards. And now we have Bluebird, a work that is as colourful and almost as peopled as the covetable Australian beach that sits as, at its subject. It is a novel of formidable scope that holds a fondness for its character characters and simultaneously scarifies certain Australian myths of mateship of diversity. It should be issued with a warning. Don't attempt to read it in a public place or people might inch themselves away as you loudly guffaw in their presence. Jacqueline Maley is a senior journalist and columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age where she writes about politics, people and social affairs. She has won several awards, including a Walkley Award for Excellence in Journalism, along with her colleague Kate McClimmett in 2020 for their Dyson Hayden investigation and the Peter Rule Award for Outstanding Columnist at the Kennedy Awards. But we are here today to talk about her hot off the press debut novel, The Truth About Her, a seductive, thrilling dissection of motherhood, of what it is to be a woman of a certain age in the world, of female rage, of the culture of reception of news and social media, with all, and all this in service of a sometimes terrifying, often beautiful human story of strength and fragility. Please welcome Malcolm Knox and Jacqueline Maley. 
because I'd like to explore some of the myriad ideas you both um, write about, and also to talk today about the bleeding of experience into fiction and story into journalism, which is no small order. I'm going to ask you first to both give a brief description of your work, um, this particular novel that we're talking about today, for those who have not yet read them. Um, all right, I'll go first. I should um, say as a preamble that this is the first event that I've done talking about my book, so go gentle. Um, I, my book is about a journalist um, and a single mother called Susie, and she's um, written an expose of a wellness blogger, and she finds to her dismay and shock that the wellness blogger after the expose is published kills herself and then Susie starts receiving in the mail packages with the personal effects of the woman and she doesn't know they're being sent from a mystery sender and the novel sort of that's the premise of the novel it really unfurls from there but um it's a lot about motherhood shame atonement guilt and stories so who owns them who gets to write them um the nature of stories Mm, thank you, Malcolm. Um, thanks, Charlie. Uh, Bluebird is about um, a kind of a, a last tribe, a last white tribe of uh, beach dwellers um, uh, in an Australian coastal city. And um, the central character, Gordon, has kind of had a few things fall into his lap, um, in particular the stewardship of a, of a house that um, contains... Uh, really his life history, um, the stages that have gone into this house and he's come into possession of this house at the moment and through the auspices of the disintegration of the rest of his life and the disintegration of, of the lives of those around him and um, it's a kind of a story of a last ditch, a last ditch battle to, to save uh, history um, but within that that battle is the undermining of, of that history and the, the questioning of uh, what exactly Gordon and, and his cronies are fighting so hard to save. Mm. At one point in Bluebird, the aptly named dog says to Gordon, the who's the journalist, without a paper, the man at the centre of this world of a novel, that he was a shit journo. <laughs> Gordon responds, I was a popular journo. I can't do the accent, sorry. <laughs> and dog counters with... Exactly. If you were better, nobody would have liked you. In The Truth About Her, Susie is an award-winning journalist whose expose leads to devastating reverberations. And both of you are, as we've already said, um, Walkley awarded journalists. And whilst it's true that there are many things that are needed to be a really great journalist, being hard-nosed is one of these characteristics, I would think. Um, do you think this comes instinct instinctually and how much of it can be cultivated? Malcolm, maybe you go. Um, look, I'll go first because I'm the warm-up act in this regard. Um, the the ex-journalist that Gordon is is very incidental to the plot. In fact, um, uh, Jacqueline can, can talk about the centrality of journalism to, to her story and her characters. This is just a part of the characterisation of, of Gordon because it's in his past. And, um, you know, he was a hopeless journalist and um, he could have been a hopeless um, 
any other number of professions. Um, what I wanted to create was was the hopelessness more than the um, the uh, specifics of the profession. But him being a journalist did give me a little bit of an opportunity to to um, I hope say something you know original about uh, his his characterisation. You don't see many journalists in print or, or celebrated in any way who have failed um, and who are not hard-nosed. Um, Gordon is soft-nosed. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's at the centre of his virtues and his weaknesses. Mm. I, I do kind of like in your book, though, Malcolm, that, that he's a journalist for... for he's, of a, fa of a failed industry, a faded industry, an industry that's gone the way of everything in, in his life. You know, <laughs> it's died, it's dissipated, it's kind of yeah. you know, lost its muscle tone. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> the yeah, um, objective correlative of his, um, you know, of his inner state. Um, and uh, again, I, I didn't intend that to be uh, at the centre of the plot, or, mm. or um, uh, even a reflection on journalism as mm. a profession today, but certainly it is the experience of many people of, of Gordon's age. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it's the it's the age and the the sense of crisis that um, that I wanted to get to the heart of. Mm. Um, <laughs> But I, I mean, you asked the question about being hard-nosed. I, I mean, I don't think of myself as at all hard-nosed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think probably like a lot of journalists, you, there's so many things you have to sort of force yourself to do. And sometimes even just making a phone call, you really have to mm -hmm. force yourself to do it because it just feels like such a horrible phone call that you're going to have to make. Um, right? And... and Susie is much more hard-nosed than, than me in that sense. She's got this armour and she just really wants to break stories and everything is in the service of a story. Mm -hmm. um, she doesn't think about the consequences of her stories and she doesn't really think about the people that she's writing about and then she's forced to in quite a dramatic way. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think about that stuff much more than she does personally um, and you make have to make moral sort of trade-offs um, all the time within your own head, I think, because mm -hmm. journalists, if they're writing those kinds of stories, they, you know, we're writing, like, we're showing up on the worst day of people's lives in a way, or even making it the worst day of people's lives by um, writing something that's really terrible about them. Um, yeah, so well, that's, that's kind of our job. Like, you can't get away from that. It, it, it's good to hear you say that because... Um, in my first days of journalism, a, a colleague of ours, Paola Totoro, you know, a born journalist, um, said to me, you know, phone, phone these people up, tell them you're from the Sydney Morning Herald and away you go. And I said, I can't phone them up. Uh, something terrible has just happened to them. And she said, well, everybody who gets a call from a journalist, they'll want to talk to you. And I thought, wow, you, you are born as a journalist. I am not. Um, and I never have been. My first experience of journalists was after um, uh, my best friend's mother died and um, uh, the family put the, the walls up and it was extremely uh, offensive to everybody around them and us what journalists were doing. So I came into the job with a bit of a prejudice against mm. journalists and to this day I've now been a journalist for 26 years and I still am scared to make phone calls yeah, because yeah. my assumption is 
nobody will want to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> That's so interesting. And I just want to ask you after you've said that, so do you feel like being a journalist for you was something that you um, were working against? You were, you were working against that image of the kind of rapacious journo. Well, not working against the image. It was um, like Life. I had to, if I, if I needed to, if I was going to survive, I needed to twist the job into a shape that mm. fitted my character. Because it, in the sense we've just been talking about my, my natural shyness wasn't going to change and, and, and my feelings weren't going to change. And also I, I, I prized the decency of not wanting to intrude into people's lives. Um, so I, I had to kind of remake the job around, mm. around me. We could just go on this point, but there is so much to talk about. So let's talk about language and its double uses, to reveal and to obscure. And there's a distinct sense of two things going on in Bluebird when it comes to the use of the Australian vernacular. There's a kind of delight in its comic possibilities, but there is also the potential for it to tip into brutality, into exclusion. And... Um, I wanted to ask you, Malcolm, were these familiar spaces that you were writing out of, not as in your, your personal space and one that, um, that it, one among friends and family, but is this something that you experienced growing up, that kind of the use of the language of misogyny and racism in a way? Um. At the moment, I am uh, completely infatuated with Fran Leibowitz. Um, I don't know, you know, this is the year of recommending Netflix mm -hmm. shows to everybody else and, and pretend it's a city, which is um, a series of conversations between Fran Leibowitz um, and Martin Scorsese um, about, about her life uh, as a, um, a writer in New York. Now, um, in the cultural terms that you can draw up, Fran Leibowitz is an outsider. You know, she's a woman, uh, she's a Jewish woman, she's from outside of New York, she's, you know, from the sticks who moved in. Um, she's poor as a church mouse. Um, and she says something in one of the episodes of, of this series uh, where she's railing against um, the, the whole debate about speaking from experience. And, you know, mm. one, one should be only speaking from experience and reflecting the reader's world to the reader. Mm. And she says, um, art, art is not a mirror, art is a doorway. And, um, I, you know, my heart sang when I heard that because I thought, yeah, she's put into words what troubles me um, about um, a, a lot of the, the current debate about only speaking from mm. your own patch. Um, I've never enjoyed a work of art that I felt was a mirror. Mm. I don't want to see myself mm. reflected. I want a doorway into, into other people's worlds. And yet, you know, I write very much about a, 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 a coastal, contemporary, um, you know, conservative sort of world that, that I do come from. However, for me, it's always a doorway. Mm. It's always a doorway into other people's lives. and. Um, for readers, I hope, you know, I have a lot of people who enjoy Bluebird who, who live in 
coastal places around Australia. But it's not that they see themselves reflected, it's that they see it as a, as a doorway through the fence um, into next door or down the street. And it's something that they're, they're curious about and their curiosity is awakened. And mm. as a roundabout way of answering your questions, um, for me, it's, it's not, I'm not really reflecting the world I know. I'm trying to prise open mm. uh, a world that is just over the other side of the fence. And so was it challenging to sit there in that world? Because it's, it's challenging to read it at times, mm. which is what, absolutely what you're doing. Well, I'm, 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 I'm the invisible man. Yeah. I, I sit in that world yeah. um, and, and the characters are sort of based on physical types I see around me, but they wouldn't know I'm there. Yeah. I'm, I'm just sort of lurking, mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a novelist tends to do, um, lurking in, you know, hiding in plain sight. Um, so I don't find it challenging in mm. that regard. I'm pretty sure nobody's going to come chasing after me with an axe. And if they do, that'll be a good story for the next book. <laughs> um, so, Jackie, when it comes to Susie, she's continually interrogating what language is doing. And I wondered if you could tell us about her feminist lens, which the experience of which was intensely familiar to me. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, central to the to the world of the book is Susie's relationship with her small daughter, and uh, this is something that I that does come from really is a jumping off point from my own life because when I was writing the book, my daughter was small, and. I just found that she was starting to absorb these, um, like, gender norms, I guess, and she was really strict. Not only was she ab absorbing them, she was enforcing them, like, so strictly on myself, on herself, on everyone around her, so she wouldn't accept, you know, that boys, like, who had long hair were boys. She was just like, no, they're not. That's not possible. Um, and so... And a lot of the language that she started using as she was picking up and really mastering language was gender-specific <laughs> language or, you know, and it, it was very sort of gendered. And so I put that into the book because I thought it was really funny because if you're a writer and you're raising a child, um, you're thinking a lot about language, how they use it, how they put it together, how their little brains kind of um, absorb it and start mastering it and using it to their own ends. So I, I thought that was interesting um, to put into the book. And, you know, I think it's probably familiar to a lot of women who have daughters where you start policing your own self and saying, well, I can't just automatically refer to he, you know, dogs can't always be he's, they should be he's or she's, mm. or all that kind of stuff, which is a very middle class kind of bourgeois sort of conversation to be having with yourself. But um, yeah, she, she thinks about language a lot in, those, in that sense. Mm. So there's one point where um, Susie points out to Maddie that the Prime Minister could be a girl and Maddie retorts laughing, no, it can't, Mummy. And we laugh here at ourselves in a kind of self-conscious manner, but actually the stakes are really terribly high. Yeah, I think, and again, this is, this is something that I struggle with myself because you want your daughter to think that she can do anything and, you know, like there's all these books that you can buy for children, you can do anything, you know, girls can be great too kind of books and it, sometimes it just feels like a, you're trying a bit too hard mm. to sell them something that isn't real. 
Um, and I wanted to interrogate that in the book and I wanted to bring it all into the, to the experience of Susie's single motherhood where she's sort of like, well, I'm the only role model actually. Um, I'm male and female here. I'm all you got. And how can I sort of convince her of a world where mm. equality exists when she's not seeing it? Um, mm. So, I, yeah, and that, that to me is a very a topic that, you know, gender equality, I suppose, more, more broadly mm. is a something that's close to my heart and is in a lot of my journalism as well, mm. yeah. Malcolm, I know you're sitting here as a fiction writer, but I also know that you're a father and you mm. have a daughter. And are these things that you think about or <laughs> that you were thinking about particularly when they were... Uh, I have no young. choice but to yeah. think about them. Yeah. I'm confronted with them yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, every day. I kind of feel, um, especially lately, my daughter's 17, and the generational... Um, uh, progression in our world has changed to the point where I, uh, so I was about 36 when she was born, I'm more like two generations ahead of her. And many of the things where, where I'm thinking of, you know, I should be addressing myself to a younger generation and their, their you know, their thought processes and their worldviews that would be a 25-year-old young woman. And actually, my 17-year-old daughter is in a state of rebellion against 25-year-olds and, uh, you know, against old women of 30. Um, and so I'm almost talking to her as a grandparent, um, which is nice, because we all love our grandparents. <laughs> and, and maybe that's how we can, we can reconcile ourselves. But there's a, you know, there's a... If, if you've got thinking children, they're, they're always in opposition, particularly at that age, in opposition to something. It's not necessarily you and your generation. And the, um, you know, the I can do anything uh, uh, has been so internalised by a 17-year-old uh, young woman of today that you don't need to make that argument or, or work on that battleground, she's progressed another step beyond that. Now might be a good time to talk about young women in your novels, both of you, actually. And um, you have Lou, um, particularly in yours, who I think if anyone is going to be an Australian Prime Minister, she will. <laughs> Um, female one, I should say, the one that we vote for. Um, not that Julia Gillard was not there for legitimate means, that sounded terrible. Um, so let's talk about them because I feel like you've got a really tender framing around Lou and Ben, um, the next generation. And Jackie, you've got Jess as mm. well as Maddie. Jess is, she's in her 20s, mm. I imagine. And I feel like Susie kind of has a kind of wistfulness around, I wish I could be like Jess, I wish I could um, be this feminist who lets thing, certain things be and just to be confident out in the world, um, a lot like Lou actually. Um, and, and it's almost as if she, it's a fantasy because it's not that that is all the generation is. There's the, the, there is no full redemption in the young generation, even if we might wish for it. So maybe you could both speak about... Maybe start with Lou. 
Oh, right. Yeah, well, Lou, Lou is... First and foremost, Lou is an outsider to the group, and, and this is in Bluebird, it's, a, it's an extremely insular, they're defined by their insularity. They're people who've, who've lived in the same place all of their lives and, and, and never, never moved and never looked outwards from that. Um, and Lou is um, primarily, in the novel, she performs the function of the person who comes from the outside with a fresh pair of eyes mm. and calls bullshit mm. on everything. And even when she's not figuring uh, in the action, you can sort of hear her calling bullshit on them. Um, she's also, um, ben, ben is a young uh, coming out gay man and, and Lou is a gay woman. And um, part of the reason they are that way is, you know, they, just, they, they were born that way <laughs> to me. But also I wanted to show something a little bit beyond the cliche about uh, you know, white bread, white bread beach culture. The cliche is that this is the, you know, the real homeland of um, uh, misogyny, racism, um, uh, homophobia. Uh, and my personal experience of those communities is it's a bit more complex than that. And uh, there's, there's a, an enormous degree of acceptance and pride in being accepting of people of colour, of gay people, whether young or old. Um, but it's not one-dimensional either. The acceptance is mixed with a lot of, you know, unconscious baggage that, that kind of pokes its way through. And um, so, again, Lou, uh, being so outside the mould and yet a person who they all admire and are a little bit scared of, um, she... She has more of a, uh, you know, a role in the novel, and I kind of sound a bit technical when I'm mm. saying this because she is a real person. But in the in the patterning of the novel, she is a um, a an agent of us being able to discover more about this community because she looks with a, a set of eyes that are probably more like our eyes. And she's also an active agent, whereas yeah. The rest aren't really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and that in itself is another. You know, it's more a comment on them than yeah. on her. Yeah, yeah. I loved Lou. I felt like <laughs> I would entrust the running of the world to, to Lou. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. In my in my novel, yeah, I've got Jess, who's a slightly younger character than Susie, um, and I thought that was interesting. Just they're not they're not exactly from. I suppose they're from a different generation. I guess they've got about ten years between them, mm. maybe maybe fifteen. Um, and Je yeah, Susie looks at Jess and admires the way she travels through the world mm. because she Susie's closed up. She's a little bit frightened. Um, she's emotionally quite withdrawn, and Jess has a confidence and an ease about her that I saw. I saw that character in a really physical way, and. You know, Susie diets and tries to make herself thin, and Jess is like, "This is the size I am." Um, you know, isn't it great? And Susie looks at her and she sees another way of being, and she thinks, "What if I didn't do all this stuff to my body? What if I didn't punish myself in these ways? What if I just was like this woman? She can do it. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could too." So yeah, it's it was kind of an interesting um, thing for me to put that in there. Mm. And then we have. The lovely Maddie. Yeah. Maybe talk to us a little bit about Maddie. Um, actually, this might be a good 
point time. for you to read. Sure. Um, if people want to read, hear a little bit of my book, um, I can do that if you want me to. I think everyone. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you. There you go. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, <laughs> this is just a little bit from when um, uh, Susie, the main character, is talking about her daughter, Maddie. Um, it was Maddie's firm belief that mice, a class of animal with which she was obsessed, lived in trees. This belief didn't come from nowhere. It was the result of a misleading picture book I often read to her in which the mouse family lived in a tree house, an elaborate, beautifully furnished house with turrets and winding staircases and little mouse-sized runners along the corridors. These tree mice were one of the main sources of conversation between Maddie and me, although we also discussed Maddie's dolls, Maddie's friends at preschool, what we were going to have for breakfast, lunch and dinner, what we were doing on the weekend, and lately what pe colour people's eyes were. The discussions were completely distinct from our arguments, which were chiefly about what Maddie would wear and the things she didn't want to do at any given time, eat dinner, leave the place where we were, brush her teeth or hair. There, were many, there are many things no one tells you before you become a parent. At the top of the list is how hard it is to brush the teeth of another person. I found these arguments frustrating and there were times I had to walk out of the room and go to my own bedroom and shut the door to breathe myself back into calm. I would sit on the blue counterpane and look, look through the French doors which gave out to the balcony and think, I have become enraged by the refusal of another person to wear socks. <laughs> and it really was rage, an uplifted pulse, a temptation to say something irrevocable, a loosening of the tongue in readiness for shouting. But the rages came and went. Our discussions were lasting and satisfying, often meandering in unexpected directions, like inquiries into what, bones, what are bones from and where is the sun gone, and do we only have one coat of skin, and once, terrifyingly, where are people made? Babies growing their mummy's tummy, I said briskly, and Maddie accepted that, although she seemed to sense it was only part of the truth. We discussed mice as I, as I walked Maddie down the street after picking her up. I took her to Tom's Cafe for a shake milk, which is what Maddie often called, uh, called milkshakes. She also said cock porn instead of popcorn, which was embarrassing at kids' parties. <laughs> I might leave it there. <laughs> so there's this sense of um, nostalgia. As she's going through parenting, um, you kind of which is what we all feel, I think, with small children because we feel how fleeting it is when we're not in the midst of the tantrum and we think this will never end. But um, there's, there's that beautiful description of the cr crease in the wrist, um, which is something, again, that is so fleeting and temporal. It, it goes and it never comes back in the same way. And so from that kind of the beauty of nostalgia, we might move towards the crippling of nostalgia. And in Bluebird, the vile frontal, <laughs> I'll say, is that all right if I call him that, <laughs> contests Gordon. He says, just think about what you're trying to save. All that shit we grew up with, old Bluebird, is it really worth it? Gordon says, some of us want to save it for our children. And frontal says, Really? You want Ben to grow up in our bluebird? It's a real moment of reckoning. Can you tell us about this? Um, well, F Frontal, the character, is sort of the villain of the, of the story. He's a, he's a council uh, bureaucrat who's um, been the, the agent for 
the overdevelopment that is, you know, crushing uh, the the residents' idea of the, this place. And um, a, a good a good piece of novelistic advice um, uh, somebody once told me was, if you want to if you want to redeem or or make more palatable um, a largely unpalatable character, um, put truth in their mouth. And uh, in that in that piece of dialogue, Frontal is the voice of truth. And, um, you know, I, d I don't want to spoil, spoil my own ending, so I won't go into it, but um, uh, it is the kind of... The, the story in this book is of Gordon actually arriving at a point where he, where he knows what Frontal is talking about and... Um, uh, you know, has to come full circle, reckon with his own past and ask um, what he's saving, but what he's asking now is closer to the reality of what he's saving rather than where he was at the beginning of the book, which is an ideal that he was fighting to save. And Jackie, when it comes to Susie, she feels a nostalgia for, a, for something else, um, something that's quite dangerous, and it's parallel existence. It's a, a continual fantasy that threads through the book. Yeah, she, um, she's been left, or she has left, um, it's always unclear, even to her own mind, by the father of her child, so she's on her own. And she's constantly held back by the existence in her mind of a parallel life, a parallel track on which she has the kind of life that she thinks other people have. Um, one where her, the father of her child didn't leave her and didn't leave their child and they had a happy existence together. And it's a fantasy and she kind of knows it's a fantasy but it's one that won't leave her and it's one that she really has to shake off if she's gonna move, move on. Mm. I wanna go to grief and you both write really perceptively about grief as a kind of stunting, disassembling force. We see this with Gordon's family, with Norma and Ron, and their inability to talk of their dead son. Do you want to tell us a bit about them? Uh, um, it, it, it's hard to talk about because, uh, you know, it affects it affects me emotionally to to think about it and to talk about it. And um, grief uh, is such a kind of a time bomb. And uh, anybody who says that they're they're over, you know, they've come to terms with the death of their parent or their child or a person close to them, maybe they're just in a phase where they're. You know, they've come to terms with it and they're between phases where they have not come to terms with it. Um, I, I don't see any of that as a, as a linear progression. That's not my experience, not my experience of anybody I know. It is a circular, a circular thing that keeps going on in circles forever. And um, that, I guess that, that's the the story I'm telling here about n not only that, that particular grief uh, with the family, but the grief of, in the loss of childhood and the loss of this, you know, to be born in Australia at this moment in time with the, all the privileges that most Australians have, um, many of which we're unconscious of, to arrive at a point where, where you just figure how, how 
much you have wasted those privileges um, is a form of grief in itself, and that's you know the grief of the grief of ageing. Um, but I also wanted to show you know progress in that, and if 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 grief is a circle, it's a ball. It's a ball that moves along, so it mm. it it keeps rotating. But it started there and it ended up there, and um, if we're lucky, we've we've learnt a little bit between here and there. Mm. Um, yesterday, I'm going to go back to Susie in a second, or rather Jan. Um, yesterday, in this very space via Zoom, Sigrid Nunez said. Um, the truth is that whatever you were feeling is what you're feeling. And she was suggesting that societal ideas about what limits of grief are or what is reasonable are sometimes further debilitating. Um, I think in terms of Jan, and it's, it's really hard to know how we can speak about this without giving too much away. Yes. Um, um, but there's a fabulous thing that um, Susie thinks of, and I'm just going to quote from the book. For Tracy Doran's mum, there was no folding up of her sorrow. It saturated her, it filled her up, she overflowed with it. It was the Fre what the French called insupportable. No structure should, could be built within the self to support it, to contain it or prop it up or to stop it from growing and spilling and combusting towards those who deserved it, like me, and probably plenty who didn't. And I feel like Jan is so different in, in, um, from Norma and Ron, and, and what goes to the difference is the ability to talk. Yeah, she she's kind of um, Jan, um, Jan is the mother of the dead girl, so um, she she I wanted her. She's a very ordinary woman, and she's she's from Queensland. She's probably lower middle class. She's one of the thousands of Australian or hundreds of thousands of Australian women or women around the world who hold a community together and receive no thanks for it. They work really hard all their lives raising children working and they and nobody notices them particularly when they move into late middle age which is exactly where we meet Jan and she is I wanted to make her this really unprepossessing woman that nobody ever thinks about this like sort of personification of vengeance and anger and and grief and she just she just like she's like a fury she just flies into the life of the main character. Um, and then she's a really complex character herself and we learn about her backstory. And yeah, I, I thought a lot about um, the way that we like women in particular to manage their emotions. And Susie feels this too. Um, the emotions that we find acceptable and when we're like, okay, that's enough. Mm. We don't want to hear any more about that. Um, and I liked the idea of these two characters kind of saying like, fuck you to those expectations in their own way not because of any political or ideological thing but just because they can't they're not able to like Jan's not able to keep it inside it spills everywhere mm. and everybody else just has to deal with it she's, she's a great model for a superhero isn't she you know <laughs> forgotten mum wonder kick-ass woman yeah. go you know you, you, yeah. you're instantly on her side yeah and I wanted to get you know she's got she's got bunions because she's worked on her feet all her life and um you know her her children are kind of like really off the rails in different ways mm. and um but she's still a really good person mm. yeah 
There's a sense that Gordon has made himself small following the family tragedy. His father, that sometimes brutal Ron, castigates him. How does it feel to have a goal of nothing? I see your headstone. Here lies Gordon Grimes. He made sure nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Ron, Ron I, I have to stress, is a, is a comic character yeah. and, um, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's so appalling. <laughs> I hope the reader can, um, can, can accept that he's appalling for a reason. Um, and, uh, you know, his, um, uh, his treatment of his son, even at their advanced ages, is still a um, fairly classic father-son relationship that Gordon, Gordon needs, to, um, needs to get beyond. Mm. Mm. And Susie, too, as you said before, constrains herself in ways with her anger, with her body, um, and also not with her body, but it is in response to these societal expectations. She's turning 40 and beginning to feel the invisibility of women. And, um, but there is too a leakage of anger, of sexuality. Do you want to talk about this a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, she's, I, I didn't think about this very much until like my mum and dad read the book and I was like, God, there's actually a bit of sex in it. Um, it's a bit weird and embarrassing. And my boss as well. Um, that was embarrassing. Um, but it's not like a sexy book or anything, don't worry. Um, but she is a sexual woman and she, um, she doesn't have relationships. It's not something that she allows herself or thinks she has time for. She has a bunch of excuses why she doesn't do that. But she doesn't have any qualms about seeking out sexual in intimacy um, on her own terms. And I, I just, I don't know, I, that to me seemed part of her. But And also I wanted to write someone who just had a very messy personal life in that mm. sense. She's got a messy personal life, but she tells herself she doesn't have a personal life. Yes. So she's deluding herself. Yeah. yeah. Life being as it is, there are overlaps in both your fiction and your biographies. So there is a kind of symmetry between Tracy's journey, this is the wellness blogger, before her suicide, and that of Norma Corey, the fraudulent memoirist who was the subject of an expose by you, Malcolm, and Carolyn Overington, for which you both won a Walkley. And it makes me think of the way we choose to construct our individual narratives and the point at which it flips over into dangerous fantasist territory. Do you want to go first, Malcolm? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know where to start. Norma, Norma was one of the great novelists of Australian literary history, except she was on the non-fiction shelves. <laughs> and, um, uh, as a character, she, she was fascinating to me because um, unlike uh, the character that Jacqueline has created, Norma, Norma was never a suicide risk. She was, she was a, um, uh, the type of con artist who was always looking forward and always on to the next thing. And the, the few occasions when I spoke to her, um, it was like she, she just wanted to figure out how much I knew mm -hmm. so that she could extend the con a little bit further. There was no um, uh, no guilt, no no regret. It, life was a game for her, and in a way, I came to admire that. Uh, that uh, you know, a person whose um, whose life is built on a fiction um, is driven, probably in her case, by very very 
complex and 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 unhappy inner causes. But uh, you know, she was one of life's great optimists. <laughs> <laughs> and Jackie, there's a, there seems to be um, a lot about the journey again before the suicide, um, and that of Bell Gibson. Yeah, so, the, I mean, the obvious comparison is Belle Gibson, um, that, and that was certainly who I had in mind. I don't even know where it really came from, but that was sort of the thing that popped into my head. Because I thought... But I didn't actually... After, the, after I had that idea, I didn't read... I purposely didn't mm. read anything about Belle Gibson because I didn't want it to be about her. Mm. Um, it, it was more the idea of someone who, and this has so much to do with my feelings and thoughts about social media and the, the, the stories that people construct through social media. And I was interested in a young person who, had, who lived, who was an internet native and who had grown up with it and had decided that they were going to construct an image really through social media and the internet um, that was completely false. And it became so overriding or so um, such a strong narrative and such a strong drive for her to create this online fiction that she became hollow as a person and she didn't really know who she was anymore because everything that she put out about herself was online and was not mm. true. Um, so I was kind of interested in that and it was very much an intersection for me, yeah, of the, the harms and the ills and the horror of, you know, parts of social media with this character mm. who was just taking people for a ride, mm. yeah. Do you think our fascination, which sometimes tips over into t delight in the fall of people like Tracy or Belle or Pete Evans, says something about us? Susie refers to it as public shaming, internet shaming. Um, no, just yeah, it's a tricky one because I don't know how many uh, people in Adelaide have been following the uh, Melissa Caddick um, oh, story yeah. in Sydney, you know, a, a, a quite a serious big time con artist that Kate McClymont has been uh, covering the story since she disappeared um, uh, without any trace um, uh, some weeks ago. And, uh, you know, Kate in her inimitable, uh, brilliant fashion um, has uh, given us this picture of, of this master con woman and uh, it's almost like we're reading a fiction and it's, mm. it's been funny. And I don't think anybody doubted that she'd manufactured some master plan of disappearance. And, you know, she's in disguise somewhere mm. on the Gold Coast, um, uh, you know, living large, but uh, nobody knows she's Melissa Caddick. And then, of course, last week, um, one of her feet washed up uh, on the beach uh, south of, 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 a long way south of Sydney. And the mood around the story instantly flipped to, oh, holy cow, um, there's a, there's a young boy here who's lost his mother, there are parents who've lost their daughter. Um, this is no longer a, a comic story. Um, it's actually, you know, ev even if you don't sympathise with what you did in any way, you must feel something for, for, for somebody who's, who's thrown themselves off the gap. Um, but then, of course, the, the victims of her fraud uh, resurface, embodying all of those mixed feelings about, well, it's terrible and, and we feel sorry for her family, um, but there's still $25 million missing and our life savings are gone with her, but they may, that, that money may be out there somewhere. So to, 
to go back to your question, it, um, you know, we, we out in the public, we're, we're spectators in a theatre a lot of the time and um, we think we've gone to see a comedy uh, but it gets flipped at some point and it's real life or it's not a comedy at all. And I think, you know, we always have to deal with um, uh, the changes in our, in our feelings and, and that's probably good for us as well, that you, you need to recalibrate um, uh, your opinions all the time. I feel like that's so generous of you. In uh, it's it's a very uh, forgiving um, theory because sometimes I think that the delight is in the, not the d delight, but it's almost like um, great tragedy. You know, there's an exodus ex through this kind of the feeling of the huge emotions and the terrible acts. Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, I I, I know of a, a young boy who goes to school with um, with her son, and uh, when he heard about Melissa Caddick's foot washing mm. up, he rang his mum and he said, you know, I bet she's she's hopping around on a, you know, okay. <laughs> on a prosthetic foot, yeah. uh, you know, somewhere somewhere out there. Um, you know, we we sublimate all these feelings through through yeah. comedy, through black black yeah. humour. Um, but no, I, I, I don't see my response as being particularly generous. When you weigh, when you weigh the despair a person feels um, that is driven to that end uh, against the financial crimes she mm. committed, uh, my my heart um, goes out to to that person. I actually meant on the part of the public. So <laughs> you, you were you were yeah. being very forgiving of us. Am I making assumptions there? Probably. No, no, no. <laughs> and tell me, Jackie. What I mean, you... I I, th I was actually thinking about the Melissa Caddick thing as well because um, it has been like watching a drama unfold. And when the mm. foot washed up, it's like, oh, what an amazing twist to this story. <laughs> um, and then we had stories about feet. You know how mm. apparently the washing up of feet is something that is quite a common phenomenon. Um, and then you think, God, that's ghastly. It's awful. What am I? What am I laughing about? Or what am I? What am I consuming mm. this for? So I know exactly what you're talking about. And we, our job lies at the heart of that tension mm. because we exhume this stuff and we do serve it up, not as entertainment exactly, but it's you know to inform and to entertain our readers. I would say that's our job, right? Um, and that's what you do in fiction as well. But you can always hide behind having made stuff up mm. in fiction. Um, but nobody wants to read or watch stories where nothing bad happens. Mm. Nobody wants that. Mm. Stories are good because they've got conflict in them and mm. they've got drama in them and, and bad things happen and the stakes are high. So I think it's something that's really human, actually. Mm. And people want to... Yeah, they're very, very interested in other people's stories and they're not so interested in the good ones. Mm. Like, that's not entirely true, but they want a little bit of tension, a little bit of conflict. Mm. If nothing happens, you don't have a story. Mm. Before I go to other questions, if there are other questions, because I have plenty, don't worry. Um, I wanted to ask you, Malcolm, about something. So we haven't really spoken about the lodge, um, this house that just has a never-ending need, unrelenting need. And it felt to me a little bit like um, the lawsuit from Bleak House, Jandice and Jandice. It felt like there was... like. It, it was without end. And I wondered if writing this, because it's so, not that it, that's what it is, but. Without I, end. No, 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 no. But 
it's so, um, the scale is so big and you've achieved it brilliantly. But I wonder if there was a point in the writing of it where you felt like, how, how do I find my way out of this? <laughs> because it, how do I finish and what I started? Because it's, there are so many moving parts. There are so many people. Um, it doesn't mean that it is anarchic in any way. Yeah, sorry, I'm laughing yeah. because you say, yeah. was there a point? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that was the experience of writing right. it. Um, uh, but I, I love books like that. I've, you know, kind of grown up and nourished myself on the, you know, the great big 19th century novels that, that have lots of characters. And um, it's, it's, you know, economy in, in all the art forms, the, the movement towards greater economy has been the movement of the 20th and 21st centuries. And I did want to kick, kick against that and be, be kind of lavish and sprawl a little bit and not tie up all the loose ends and, and give uh, readers a bit of a, a sense of that unruliness of, um, that you get in, the, in, the, in those 19th century novels. And, you know, Dickens, Dickens half the time those characters <laughs> disappear for 300 pages <laughs> and then come back or they disappear completely and you don't know what happened to them. The, and, and that's the beauty of them, the, um, the, the, the loss of control and, and the fact that he couldn't find his way out or, or get out from under it. And it doesn't matter in the end. So um, I say that now as if I partly meant it, but uh, yes, all flaws are actually um, uh, mistakes and uh, not, not intended. And um, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it's a challenge to have a lot of people in a book because they all require attention. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're like children and um, uh, my, um, my uh, talking about the lodge, it's partly based on uh, a house that my wife's grandmother lived in and she was one of 12 uh, and she had nine uh, children and of those nine, they uh, all but one had children themselves, often in multiples. Um, so this house, which was a pretty modest, um, kind of crummy little house, was often the, the residence and the locus for more than 20, 30, the first time I went there, there were about 40 people there. And I think they all stayed the night. Um, and, and that's kind of, the, that, that's how I feel about the book itself, right. that it, it, it is that, that house that's, um, it's never quite gonna stand up to, to, you know, natural or unnatural forces. <laughs> Are there any questions that people know? Because that's fine, I will continue. We only have a few minutes anyway. Um, so I might throw some other questions at you, which are... Oh, can I ask a question? Yes. Because um, Jacqueline has been um, reassigned to what is now known in the papers as the Christian Porter Round. Um, with the stuff we were just talking about, um, uh, you know, the the generic mix-up of real-life stories that we, you know, we don't know if we're reading comedy, tragedy, and it can change from day to day depending on, on new information. Um, how, have, how have you dealt with that day by day, um, knowing that anything could switch to the opposite direction tomorrow? Um, this, this is a very hard story, I think, in many ways, because um, it's so tragic. It's so tragic. And, like, 
it's really, it does affect you, I think. Um, everybody probably knows, you know, we're having this huge moment about women talking about sexual assault and harassment openly, and everybody, everybody can relate to it. Everybody can relate to it. So there's that. It becomes quite personal, I suppose. Um, and it's very hard to, 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 you know, our job is to be objective and to inform our readers. This has been, it's been very, very hard to do both those things because it's hard to be an objective in a story like this because at the end of the day, you do form an opinion about whether or not he did it or not mm. or whether she's telling the truth or not. And also, um, you can't inform your readers because you can't tell them everything that you know. And that's been a very, very difficult one with this story. I'm sure you've dealt with that a lot. And there's stuff that you know um, that people won't go on the record or, they, or you can't say it for defamation reasons. Um, and it's very difficult. Um, and also, I have a strong sense of fairness. I, you know, I'd studied a law degree. I believe in the principles of natural justice very strongly. But, and newspapers are not courtrooms. But also, newspapers are not courtrooms, so we don't mm -hmm. have to. We don't have to meet a standard of proof or evidence that they do in a court. Mm. I don't, and where that line lies is very different, depending on the day and depending on the editor you talk to. And you have to take a lot of thing, a lot of people's feelings into consideration, not least the person who's at the centre of this stuff. Yeah, it's really hard. I found it very difficult. Yeah. It seems to me, watching from the outside, one of the hardest things is the acceleration of of media and of information flow um, so by comparison uh, a, a tv serial that that everybody would have been watching 25 years ago 30 years ago they had a week to talk about it between the next gripping installment um, with with what you're doing on stories like this uh, it moves so quickly there's no time to stand back and think either for you no. or for the readers. No, and so you're just always like waking up in a grip of dread, thinking that you've got it wrong, like yeah. right. And and also with the with the when you're dealing with anonymous people, in this case, both parties were anonymous at first, and now and then Christian Porter um, volunteered himself as a person who'd been accused. But like it's all over social media already, mm. like who his his identity, and there's all these like frankly terrible people on Twitter, you know saying all this terrible stuff in a really triumphant way um, and it, that, does, that doesn't help anybody, I think. Yeah. 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 <sighs> we were talking about this before, actually, and there feels like a real weight at the moment. So let's sit with that for a second. I'm not going to cry. You nearly made me cry before, <laughs> Malcolm. And um, so let's go back to art and literature as... Um, a place where we can talk about these these ideas, but also that makes us laugh, that, that brings us beauty. And it's been such a wonderful conversation today. I look forward to reading whatever you write next in whatever form. Please thank Malcolm Knox and Jacqueline Maley. Thank you. And thank you for being such a great audience as well. Um, I just have a quick COVID announcement, but it's not there, so you all know what to do. Um, Jacqueline and Malcolm will be signing books at the tent, uh, outside the tent, and they're open 
for sale and read them. If you haven't read them, read them. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Carly. Sarah.